we ended chapter 20 in which we saw, in chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, in which we saw judgment of the nations before the great white throne, we looked into the matter of the second death, which is both what comes to Satan and a false prophet, the remnants of what's the beast, and all the nations that had slept in the dust of the earth waiting for the second resurrection. You'll recall, of course, the first resurrection was of the righteous saints, ones who had died uh, before the return of the Lord. Now then, as we, uh, we saw all the nations assembled before the throne of God for judgment, and that they were all dealt with, as it were, in the lake of fire, which is described as the second death. Following that, uh, we, we in fact, the last enemy to be destroyed in this fashion, were, the last enemies, plural, were death and hell. I had intended to speak about death and hell as a separate issue, but in as much as I've already done an extensive teaching on the spirits of death and hell, and in fact in the early part of the teachings on the book of Revelation, I spoke about the, the fourth horseman or the rider on the fourth horse whose name was death and hell followed after. And I laid out uh, the, the teaching on the spirits of death and hell after whom the, the domain of hell was named, uh, that is, of the, after the spirit of hell, and the condition of death was named after that spirit also. The spirit of death, of course, causes separation from God uh, from the very beginning. And it's not necessarily altogether consummated when a person dies because, as I mentioned, there is an appointment. As long as we're in this earthly abode, this physical house, this house of flesh, this house is appointed to die. So there's no punishment in the death of the body. Uh, the punishment uh, of separation from God, which is the true meaning of death in Scripture, the most consummate meaning of the spirit of death in Scripture, that is ruled over by a spirit, that condition is ruled over by a spirit who works in conjunction with the spirit of hell. Now again, I've, I've dealt extensively with this in other teachings and to include uh, the teachings in the early part of the book of Revelation when I spoke on the spirit, the fourth horseman. So I won't, I won't uh, take the time now to rehash those things. I simply want you, if you're interested, to go back and review those teachings because death and hell are the last enemies to be destroyed. 
With that then, and with the Lamb's Book of Life, we see the conclusion of all opposition to God ever in creation. And all of this opposition surrounds the character known as Satan, who's variously described as the dragon, the serpent, the devil, and Satan. Multiple times in the book of Revelation there is that reference so that we are not in doubt as to who the devil is and we're not unable to track him through the pages of Scripture beginning with the Garden of Eden and now finally and ultimately concluding with his destruction in the lake of fire. We understood the analogy of the lake of fire to the Dead Sea and to Sodom, Gomorrah, uh, sulfur and, uh, and fire um, that was, was consistent with how God dealt with gross opposition uh, to His rule. So we want to move on then from the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation and now we're moving into the 21st chapter. As always, I want to remind you again that you cannot read any of the book of Revelation without keeping in mind the rest of the Scriptures because indeed the book of Revelation is primarily a summation of all Scripture and at this juncture it's a summation of all unfulfilled prophetic Scripture. But as I've emphasized throughout the study of the book of Revelation, the summation of all things is where the natural references to these things which precede the spiritual completeness of the same matters comes first. But in the book of Revelation, the reason it is not a linear but rather a circular and more particularly a cyclical understanding, that can be confusing uh, to the mind that insists on everything being a linear chronology. Linear, of course, meaning things moving forward on a line. It is not to say that certain things uh, do not come after other things. However, in the appearing of those things that come subsequently, you must always look for the natural antecedent, but your understanding has to be upgraded from the natural occurrence, the natural antecedent to the completeness of the thing since this is a book of the completing of things. And the completing almost inevitably will be a a spiritual reference to that which was foreshadowed by a natural reference. Critically important, you cannot, I, I I would say unequivocally, you cannot understand the book of Revelation 
apart from understanding these particular concepts, these particular principles. So you can't, you, you're, you're, you're constantly presented in the book of Revelation with the interaction between heaven and earth as it regards certain events, certain personalities, certain types, certain shadows. There's a constant interaction between heaven and earth because this is the final summation and things that remained in heaven until now have to make their entrances into the earth. And in fact, when all of what is in heaven that was destined to come to the earth is complete, then there's actually no further need for the heavens as we know them now. So there will be new heavens and a new earth, a renewed earth and heaven as described in its connection to earth. Major transitional things. And also the human body that we now wear and that others before us wore, they died and which bodies were placed in the dust of the earth waiting to be resurrected, that resurrection obviously, abundantly, clearly is a resurrection of a different form of body, unequivocally stated in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. Whenever heaven comes into the earth, and again these are, these are reminders of things I've already said because the 21st chapter, beginning with the 21st chapter, there's an unmistakable descending of invisible things into a visible realm. When they appear, when, when invisible things appear in the visible realm, they become visible but not as material, not as carnal, if you like, not as of this earth. Even when Jesus appeared from heaven into the earth the first time, He brought the economy of heaven with Him, although He Himself was veiled in human flesh. But before He left the earth, there was, in fact early in His ministry on the earth, there was an unveiling of who He is as viewed from a heavenly point of view. One of the earliest unveilings was when the angels came to announce His birth. Um, an unmistakable reference to an otherworldly, an out-of-world happening on the earth. If we are left in any measure of doubt as regarding that, you need only to note two particularly significant things very early in his ministry, maybe three. One was upon being baptized by John in the river Jordan and as he had come up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove 
a thing entirely unprecedented in the history of the world. And a voice was heard out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That was immediately followed by Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. At the end of his 40 days is the supernatural encounter in which the natural is suspended altogether. To include Jesus being suddenly taken to the top, to the pinnacle of the, t- of the temple and, and being tempted to cast himself down and also Jesus being taken suddenly to a high mountain and showed all the kingdoms of the earth. Again, supernatural happenings but within the context of natural things and natural references. Probably the most definitive of this principle, of these examples, of this principle of the the superseding, overriding occurrence is when Jesus is taken to the Mount of Transfiguration and there in the presence of Peter, James and John, He is transfigured into a supernatural reality and from which viewpoint then all that had transpired on the earth by way of prior authorities such as the law and the prophets, such as Moses and Elijah typifying the law and the prophets and the vast scope of influence that both of them had, suddenly Jesus is alone in all His glory and again God speaks to to Peter, James and John telling them that Jesus is the superseding preeminent concept or reality. I could go on and on with this double reference. Um, Notably, the discussion of the new Jerusalem is such a thing, the double reference. So here we have now verse 21, chapter 21 verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, he said, also there was no more sea. Now consistent with the declaration of this new heaven, John said, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So let me, let me talk to you about new versus natural Jerusalem. The first reference to a new rendition of Jerusalem is not here. We have much, a much earlier reference that I wish to take you to. Go back with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 18, 
we are told, for you did not come unto the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sounds of a trumpet and the voice of words which voice when they heard entreated that they would not be spoken to, that, uh, that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. In other words, this goes back to Mount Sinai, or it's a reference to Mount Sinai when the people did not want to talk with God, which was a time when He would have brought them into the functioning covenant of the order of Melchizedek at the time. It is this failure that resulted in the law of Moses and the covenant from Mount Sinai which God made exclusively with the Jews, exclusively with the Jews. He goes on to say, for they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched a mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and tremble. Verse 22, of particular note to us. So he didn't come to that mountain. He didn't come to that mountain. Mountains then are presented in Scripture both naturally and symbolically. They are meeting places of heaven and heaven and earth, and they're also meeting places between God and man. Mount Sinai, Moses was up on that mountain before he was commissioned to return to Egypt, and there, in the phenomenon of the burning bush, he meets the Lord. Again, Moses. Uh, meets with the Lord on Mount Sinai forty years later when Israel had been brought uh, to that mountain and before God was uh, about to release the covenant to Moses uh, in the form of the Ten Commandments. And again, I'm merely summarizing not for the point of precision but for the point of reference. Then God descended on Mount Horeb uh, when it was time to lead Israel into, into the Promised Land. So there's Sinai, there's Horeb, and so on. But here's what He says, verse 22, But you are come to Mount Zion, so not Sinai, not Horeb, associated with the law and the covenant from Sinai, that's not what you've come to. You've come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is a different reference. It may be one of these mountains. It certainly was uh, the mountain on which uh, the temple, or it was adjacent to the mountain on which the temple was built in Jerusalem. But Mount Zion or Mount Zion takes on a different meaning 
from the natural. It takes on the meaning of the spiritual. It takes on the meaning of the spiritual. But you have come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkling of blood that speaks of better things than the blood of Abel. So he says, do not refuse him who speaks from the mountain. So here we are with a reference to a new Jerusalem that's already functional. You didn't come to the old covenant, you didn't come to the the physical city of Jerusalem. That's why nobody has to go to Jerusalem. I am astonished at the idiocy of of so many of these teachings where people, Christians, feel like they have to make this trek to Jerusalem. Go to Jerusalem if you want to. Go as a tourist if you care to. I've been multiple times. But it's not for an experience with God. It may enhance your knowledge of Old Testament things and the like, but you have already come. If you're a member of the body of Christ, you've come to the general assembly and church or body, ecclesia, the body of the called out of Christ. So if you're in the body of Christ, you are in the new Jerusalem. Now, now the full manifestation of the new Jerusalem is not entirely in this one reference. It's not about a city coming down in its entirety. Rather, it is about a state of being. It's a state of being. Let me see if... uh, So, he tells us in another place, in Hebrews 13 at verse uh, 14, verse 13 and, and then 14, Let us go forth therefore unto him, outside of the camp, bearing his reproach, for here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks." So the spiritual Jerusalem is actually outside of the camp, so to speak because that's where Jesus was was crucified. The body of Christ, not the body of Jesus, that was the body of a living man, of a man, 
but the body of Christ is a spiritual body. By now all these things are to be so commonplace, so well known to you that you should have no difficulty but pure ease in making the transition in your thinking. We are the body of Christ, a spiritual entity, has multiple references within the scriptures. Ephesians 6, or rather Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 22. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church, lay down his life for the church which is his body. 1 Corinthians 12, at about verse 12, the human body is the analogy comprised of many members and so it is with the body of Christ. We're assembled to the body of Christ and this is what makes itself ready. My point is, quite directly, quite simply, when you have been assembled to the body of Christ, when you're baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit, you've been assigned your place in the body of Christ, you then are in the city of God, you then are in the city of peace, you then are vested in the new Jerusalem. That's what presently, not waiting to come but presently. So here's the critical understanding associated with that. In any future manifestation of this reality, it will not be like the city of Jerusalem. That's why the rebuilding of the temple has nothing to do with the body of Christ. And part of the deception of the deceiver and the antichrist is the rebuilding of the temple because carnal Christians think that the rebuilding of the temple is somehow the restoring of the dwelling place of God and of Christ. It is not. That's why God destroyed it. So you would not be confused. The rebuilding of it is not by the will of God, it is by the will of the Antichrist and it is exclusively for the deception of the weak and those who do not know God. But a new Jerusalem has multiple revelations, it is revealed in multiple forms. The first of the new form of Jerusalem, the first, is presently available. It is called the body of Christ. You did not come to Mount Sinai or or, or Mount Zion really, excuse me, you did not come to Mount Sinai, you came to Mount Zion, to the general assembling and to the church or the body of the firstborn. That's available now, you may enter into it now. The fullness of its glory and of its reality will descend 
so to speak, because it is by definition a spiritual reality and as heaven and earth come into the new design with the return of the Lord, you will have a descending. Here's what so many have missed for so long. This is a new epoch. A new epoch is introduced with the return of the Lord. All that is to happen within that new epoch does not happen immediately. The beginnings will and the progression will ultimately come forth, but the reality of that economy will have already come. So with the return of the Lord, certain things will come with Him, like the great white throne of judgment, because He will come to rule as King and rule with a rod of iron and there will be those who will rule with Him and reign with Him and there will be those who are ruled over. We've we've done an extensive presentation of that previously, I won't get into it. So it is setting up for that reality born in heaven, born carried in heaven to continuously, progressively be revealed upon the earth, but it's not a one event. It's a continuous descending of what is to characterize this age known as the millennium. By the end of the millennium, it will have come fully. I want to pause there and when I resume, I want to introduce the concept that since The New Jerusalem is a discussion of the body of Christ in this new form of representation. There will be many things familiar to you, but not, not ever, you, you ought never assume that this is somehow a linear understanding. For example, this city has 12 foundations. Does that mean that the city is so massive that it needs 12 physical foundations? No. When you note that the 12 foundations are the 12 apostles of the Lamb, it's telling us something very specific. When you note that the city has 12 gates, each with the name of the twelve tribes, it's telling us something different. It's the amalgamation of the promised land, but now in the form of a city, so to speak, a dwelling place that is called the bride. And it is based upon teachings of the twelve apostles, we need to understand what was it that they taught? How is all of this related to Christ? 
So the New Jerusalem is the focus for the next set of messages. I'll see you then. Sam Solon, bye for now.